Hey, this is Leslie for the Rabbit Room Podcast. This summer, Rabbit Room launched a new division in Rabbit Room Theater, and its first production opens in Nashville on June 30th. Artistic director Pete Peterson's adaptation of Corey Ten Boom's beloved The Hiding Place, directed by Matt Logan, will run until July 23rd at the Soli Deo Center. You can learn more about Rabbit Room Theater and get tickets for The Hiding Place at rabbitroomtheater.com. This play has been in development for years, dating back to an initial production in Houston in 2018. In this bonus episode of the Rabbit Room podcast, Drew and I are joined by playwright and Rabbit Room executive director Pete Peterson to talk about the legacy of the Hiding Place book, the process of adapting such a book into a stage play, and the culmination of all the work into a three-week live production. So join us in the top floor of Northwind Manor for a conversation on the themes contained in the Hiding Place story and a look inside what it takes to bring a book to life on stage. In this episode of the Rabbit Room Podcast, we are above the moon, beyond the stars. Cloud nine. Cloud nine. We are exceedingly happy to have as our guest, Pete Peterson, executive director of the Rabbit Room, as well as creative director. What's Artistic your official? Artistic director Artistic. of Rabbit Room Theater. Which is a brand new initiative by the Rabbit Room, kind of, in officiality. Theater has been happening with me personally, and the Rabbit Room has been sort of a cheerleader for it. And now this is a brand new program that's actually sponsored by the Rabbit Room. Mm -hmm. So it's the first time that's happened, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. And what's the Um, vision of it? How does it fit into the larger Rabbit Room conversation? Yeah, so the Rabbit Room has a lot of programs like Hutchmoot, Rabbit Room Press, Rabbit Room Podcast Network. And we're just creating a new one of those that is called Rabbit Room Theater. And the inaugural stage production of Rabbit Room Theater is The Hiding Place. That is true. I am deeply honored. Yeah, so The Hiding Place initially premiered in Houston in 2018, I think. I can't remember, 18, 19, something like that. It did really well down there. I was really proud of it. And immediately started having conversations about how can we put it on the stage here in Nashville. It was really heartbreaking for me to have put so much work mm-hmm. and time into something that then took place so far from everybody I knew. Mm-hmm. I had some friends that went down and saw it. And, you know, I'm glad that everybody in Houston got to see it. But it was just a little bit sad that my friends and family here in town never got to see it. So I was really doubly excited to figure out a way to put it on the stage here. Mm-hmm. And then COVID got in the way of all of that. But it turned out to be a good thing. It gave us a solid two years to really think through uh, how the best way to do theater in Nashville would mm. be for right. us as the rabbit room. Yeah. And uh, what we came out of it with was, you know, just the belief that we feel called to it. I feel called to it. And the rabbit room board was behind it and said, okay, we're going to pull the trigger on this. We're going to set up a new arm of the rabbit room dedicated to ministering to the city of Nashville and to the theater community of Nashville through drama. Mm. And so it felt like a real opportunity to launch a program like that with The Hiding Place because The Hiding Place is really on mission for The Rabbit Room. And it's just a really well-known property that we felt like lots of folks would want to come to. And it'd be a great first exposure to The Rabbit Room for a lot of people Mm -hmm. who might not have heard of us before. So talk about Hiding Place. It's this beloved book, Mm -hmm. Corey Ten Boom, which 
it seems to me if you know it, you really, really know it. If you yeah. don't know it, you have no idea what people that are talking about. That is totally about. true. As mm-hmm. we've gone forward with the production and started to talk about it publicly, it, people people really clearly fall into two camps. It's either, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. I've read this book every year of my life for 40 mm-hmm. years. Or what is that? I've never heard of it. Yeah. There's very few in between people. So where did you first become familiar with it? I was in the camp of, I've never really heard of it. Mm-hmm. So the, the quick story is back in like 2017 or so, uh, a good friend of mine was head of AD Players Theater Company down in Houston. And that theater company was founded by the woman who played Corey Ten Boom in the movie from the 70s. Uh-huh. So they had really close affiliations with that story. And she had passed away a few years prior and they had just completed construction on a brand new theater in downtown Houston called the George Theater, named after Jeanette Cliff George, Mm. and wanted to sort of inaugurate that theater with a brand new production of The Hiding Place Mm. for the stage. And so Jake Speck and I had worked closely before in theater here in Nashville. And he said, hey, I think Pete Peterson could probably pull this off. And so he called me and said, hey, we're going to, we want to do this Hiding Place stage adaptation. Do you want to write it? And I was like, heck yeah, but first let me go read the book and see if I like yeah. it because I've never heard of this. <laughs> I had actually heard Corey Tinboom's name, but I had no idea who she was. Yeah. So I went away and read the book, you know, in a few days and called Jake back and was like, hey, this has got a lot of potential. I would love to work on mm. this. For those listening who don't know Corey Tinboom right. or the story, can you give us a yeah. brief? So the basic story is that in during World War II, uh, Corey Tinboom and her family, they're Dutch. They lived just outside of Amsterdam in a town called Harlem, and uh, they had a real passion for the Jewish people. In fact, they had led a prayer group in their home for a hundred years prior to the war, just to pray for the Jewish people, because their family felt led to do that. And so during the Nazi takeover of Europe and the Holocaust, they transitioned from a mere prayer group to sheltering Jews Mm -hmm. and hiding them in their home. And they, and were, they were watchmakers. They have a, a they watch were, shop right. under there. They their... were watchmakers for years, for generations. And in the back of their watch shop was their home. And that is where they constructed a secret room and hid Jews from the Nazis for several years. Ended up saving seven or 800 people over the course of the war. But eventually they were caught by the Nazis and the family was shipped off to t- concentration camps. And essentially Corey is the sole survivor. So the hiding place is the story of all of that, of how they began to hide Jews and what happened as a consequence of it. And it's a powerful story. It was a real honor to be able to work on, especially knowing how beloved it was by a whole generation of people. And then on top of that, you know, to be kind of included as a caretaker of the remembrance of the Holocaust, it was powerful Mm. and something Mm. I took really seriously. You went to... Yeah, so they commissioned, you know, me to write the play and I felt like for me to really do a good job and honor it, I needed to do research. So Jennifer and I, my wife and I flew over to Holland to the Netherlands and spent time there in Harlem, visited Corey's house, hmm. stood in the hiding place, the little false room that they have, and that was fascinating. And then we traveled across Germany and visited Ravensbrück in the concentration camp, which is where Corey and her sister were held captive, and her sister was ultimately murdered. And then we even went down to Dachau and did some further research there about the Holocaust and the whole concentration camp experience. And that was powerful. Mm -hmm. Like, I've often described that as 
sort of the negative image of how people talk about the Grand Canyon. Uh, if you know anybody that's been to the Grand Canyon, people talk about how big it is. And everybody's seen pictures of it. Everybody thinks they know what the Grand Canyon is. But when you go and you actually walk up to the rim of the Grand Canyon and look into it, you're completely speechless by the sheer size of it. Yeah. There's no picture that can contain mm-hmm. the reality of how big the uh, Grand Canyon is. Mm-hmm. And so visiting a concentration camp is like the dark version of that. We think we know the story. We've seen the statistics. We've seen Schindler's List. We've seen all the things. And then you go and you stand in the place and you stand in front of the oven mm-hmm. where thousands of people were disposed of. At the end of the tour, there was this book that was, it was like a phone book. Um, for those of you who remember phone books, <laughs> it was a big, thick book with really thin pages. And you open it up and it's full of little tiny print. And each page is filled with a name and then the date they got to Ravensbrook and the day they died there. And that entire phone book is filled with people who were murdered in Robinsbrook. And that is powerful. And then to increase that, you walk past that book into the next room and there's a map of Europe with a light on it for every concentration camp. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, and every one of those camps has a similar book. Mm-hmm. And that's an unfathomable yeah. depth of depravity and evil that you just can't get your mind around. So it was super valuable for me to go through that because there's no doubt that the show as I wrote it was informed by that experience. And I know it wouldn't have been the same show if I had just gone off the book material without having gone and emotionally felt the heaviness of what Corey and Betsy Ten Boom were put through. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was grateful to be able to do that. We were talking before we started recording about the complexities of taking a book like the hiding place and yeah. adapting it to stage and what does translate and what mm-hmm. doesn't translate. Yeah. And for the things that don't translate to stage, what you do in order to cover that part of the story and convey. Yeah. So I was really curious to ask you what a few key moments from the book are that translated very well to the stage mm-hmm. in the adaptation process versus a few elements that you were like, man, this is really cool yeah. in the book and it just can't be fathomed. Yeah, that's a great question. And like to start off, like every art form, every medium is its own thing. Mm-hmm. The book that Corey wrote with the Sherrills, it was actually a kind of co-write thing. The Hiding Place is sort of the novelization of her story. Mm-hmm. And it exists in that form and it is excellent. Mm-hmm. However, to exactly take those words and those events and just translate them directly onto the stage is not creating good theater. Mm-hmm. One of the things that novels do really well is show a reader the internal life of a person. Mm-hmm. You get to know their thoughts mm-hmm. and how they arrived at conclusions and why are they are saying the things that they're saying. And you can understand those on a visceral level. And that's what a novel does really well. Stage, on the other hand, can't do that. Well, it can, but it's complicated. But what stage does really well is images in three dimensions, seeing relationships uh, between people in three dimensions and seeing relationships between people and ideas in three dimensions. Mm. So there's a completely different way that you have to approach a story when you're telling it on the stage. That was a challenge. And one of the biggest challenges of that was in Corey's book, she's recounting this story basically 30 years after the fact. So she spent 30 years thinking about it and understanding how she and Betsy acted 
and understanding how she felt and coming to conclusions. So as she's talking about things, she'll present a problem and then she'll tell her what she has concluded from that. But in reality, I don't think that's the way we work. It takes that 30 years to really wrestle with suffering in a concentration camp. And so there are these scenes where, you know, they arrive at the concentration camp and Betsy walks in to the barracks and there are fleas all over the beds and the fleas are just there biting them and biting them. And Betsy immediately is like, oh, we should be thankful for the fleas because they're God's creatures. And that's in the context of the book, it's really powerful and meaningful. And a lot of people remember that, but you remember that because you've had a lot of unpacking of who Betsy was and how she was thinking and what her thought processes are in that moment. Whereas if on stage, if you just show a person go, Oh, thanks for the fleas. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come across Mm -hmm. like that. And so the challenge is how do we represent these characters and these people in these places in a way that feels human to us Mm -hmm. and relatable to us so that we can understand how they came to those conclusions. And so What I immediately recognized as I began to adapt it was that I needed to understand how Corey became the woman that she Hmm. is that we all know. Like So if you've read the book or if you've seen videos of Corey Ten Boom, she's this very confident person who almost like an apostle. She preaches the gospel so effectively and so unabashedly. Hmm. And I wanted to know how she became that person. And I think in, in my retelling, she became that person by going through suffering and having to watch her sister model for her what a martyr's life is like. And through that experience, she comes out of it with the ability to go forth into a world and be the witness that she was called to be. And so there has to be this kind of trajectory of her wrestling with that. Yeah. And that's not always apparent in the book. I think it's definitely between the lines, mm-hmm. but it's not the way that Corey herself told it necessarily. So this is my version And that's not to say that it's not faithful to the book. I think it's very faithful to the book. But you have to to build into it that sort of human wrestling, I think, for it to really resonate with audiences. And based on what we saw in Houston, I think that happened. I think people really, really latched onto it in a good way. I, if I'm honest, when I read it, I had a little bit of trouble with the character of Betsy. Yeah. She is so confident and strong in her faith and unwavering in the understanding of God's providence and God's Mm -hmm. care for his creation. And there are these moments where they walk in and I, I can't remember exactly what she says, but it's something to the effect of like, we need to be grateful for the fleas, but Corey's a little bit, not sure why. And then later on the book, there's a real reason why it's important that the fleas are there. You know, it comes to fruition. I don't want to give it away. I want to spoiler alert. And that exactly is in the play. But what's interesting about what you just said was that there are just small moments where Corey, in her reflection back, she's going, my faith wasn't as strong as Betsy's was. And that kind of sometimes was the focus. Mm -hmm. But you have to believe that her consternation about such things would go on for much longer than what she says they did in the book, right? Yeah. I mean, she was probably upset about the fleas for for <laughs> days, weeks, you know. Yeah. But you don't get that full telling. You don't really see right. the backstory. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you don't see any of Betsy's backstory or inner monologue like you right. would see in yeah. a play. And yeah. that's what I'm really excited about is to see that other dimension yeah. of Betsy's story and her character. Yeah. So what a lot of people may not realize is we were premiered the show in Houston. And it was great. But then the opportunity to hear, to do it here in Nashville presented the opportunity to revisit the script. Mm. And both me and Matt, uh, Matt Logan, the director of the show here in Nashville, as there was some untapped potential and some, some other things we wanted to tease out of the story. 
And so I've done very significant rewrites. So the show that happened in Houston is not the show that you will see in Nashville. It's a different show. Mm. It's not so different that it's unrecognizable, but I think the astute watcher will notice the differences. Mm. But one of the things that we took the opportunity to do was really pull out of Corey and Betsy's stories, moments from their childhood. Mm. And I went back and read all of Corey's accounts of her childhood and her relationship with her father to really get a great sense of how he had throughout their lives, taught them to be the people that they were becoming. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to inform a lot of these reactions and decisions they were making along the way with what they had been taught as children. So the two young girls that we have playing Corey and Betsy in the show now have much bigger part in this production than they did in the Houston production Mm -hmm. as we weave in some of those flashbacks to the way that their father taught them Mm -hmm. and to the way in which their father is sort of an icon of God the Father in their lives. Mm. And through Corey's reflection on her upbringing and then the model that was set for her by her sister, Mm -hmm. you know, that's how she comes to the conclusions that she does at the end of the play that what I am meant to do is to go into the world and be a witness to what I've seen. Mm. So that was a lot of fun in finding these nonlinear ways to inform these decisions, just like you're talking about. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And there's so many beautiful stories. Like that was actually one of the uh, frustrations I think audiences had in the first production was there's this famous story that Corey tells in the book about uh, her asking her father a difficult question. Mm -hmm. And her father says, well, go over there and bring me my suitcase. And she says, well, I can't, Papa, it's too heavy. And he says, exactly. And some things in life are like that. They're too heavy and you have to trust your father to carry them for you until you are able to carry them yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't eventually initially put that in the play because it, I just didn't find a place for it. But in revisiting it, we really found a way for that to inform a whole lot of Corey's story. Yeah, my gosh. So that's I had forgotten the, about that yeah, moment. It's a great it moment. And it's yeah. a great picture of how Casper, as a father, taught his children. Yeah. It is just beautiful and very Christ-like in its kind of parabolic nature, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'm, it's going to be really interesting to see how audiences respond to this new adaptation of it. Oh, I'm really excited. I think it's a much stronger show. I did want to ask you about the revision process and specifically how that interacts with your collaboration with Matt Logan. Yeah. Because this is not your first rodeo together. Yeah. And and I've been fortunate to see Frankenstein live. The Battle of Franklin was before my time, so I didn't see mm-hmm. that. But I would love to hear a little more about how that revision process took place with both of your minds at work yeah. together. Well, I feel it. so lucky. Matt is the director that I work with on my shows primarily. And uh, he is a visionary stage director, set designer, and costume designer. Mm. I would argue that he's the best there is. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he's constantly an inspiration to me with the way that he envisions things. And somehow, some way, I apparently inspire him with what I write. So, you know, I just feel like the benefit of that sort of mutual admiration has been really really wonderful Mm -hmm. because there are moments when I can write something and I'll think it's finished and Matt will read it. And then he'll say, that's great. But what if it was staged kind of like this? And I'm like, oh yeah. And then if I wrote it like this instead, Mm -hmm. and then he can like, oh yeah. And then if I did this instead. And so then what that comes out, what comes out of the process is just, it's really collaborative. And so it's not something it's, which is fun because I love that in theater, I cannot take credit for what I create. 
Like it's, it's weird to me, like if I'm in public and somebody comes up and says, oh, hey, I love The Fiddler's Gun and The Fiddler's Green. They're my favorite books. Thank you so much for writing them. I get bashful because, you know, I, I just shrink away from praise like that. And I say, thank you. But when somebody <laughs> comes and says, hey, I saw Frankenstein and it was just like this earth shattering experience and I loved it. Then I have the opportunity to say, oh, man, wasn't it great? Because Matt mm. did this great job and the actors mm. and the set and the lights and all that. You have a lot so of different there, muses. that There were so many people involved other than yeah. me that it's not hard for me to get excited with the person. And it's I incarnational, them. too. It I mean, really it, it really it's just this embodiment of yeah. all these different people yeah. and their ideas. It's, so it's super exciting. And Matt and I, I think, for whatever reason, just kind of like are on the same wavelength with a lot of mm-hmm. stuff. So he will reflect back to me what he sees as potential in my writing. Mm-hmm. And I'll often reflect back to him what I see as you know potential in the staging. Yeah. And very rarely is what ends up on stage the result of just one person's idea. Yeah, It, it tends to be a hybrid. And I think it's always better than we could have done alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel incredibly grateful for just having him around. Mm-hmm. Talking about the team, talk about the cast. Yeah. Have, is the cast set? Have you done at this point, have you done auditions for it? We have everything is, I think everything's cast now or in final kind of contract negotiations, but Nan Gurley, mm-hmm. who is a daughter of Nashville, uh, she is playing Corey Ten Boom. She is the actress who played Corey in Houston. So mm-hmm. she originated the part. And I think she was born for it. Mm. She's fantastic. She's a lifelong, brilliant actress that is just one of the best in town and probably in the industry. And then, uh, and a believer and a, a strong, strong believer, faithful. which is important to me, actually. We, you know, I, I really wanted somebody in the role who understood it on a fundamental level, yeah. mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily necessary. Uh, and to be fair, like we have had people read the part who were not believers. And, you know, they understand it too. So it's not required, but it's kind of an added bonus Mm -hmm. when a person can back it up with, you know, feeling exactly the same Mm -hmm. way that Corey does about Mm -hmm. what they're saying. So, yeah, that's true. And then Betsy is played by Carrie Tillis, who is also a friend from here in Nashville. She's, she was in Battle of Franklin. And if you've been to the stage much here in Nashville, you've probably seen her at some point. She's Mel Tillis's daughter, Pam Tillis's sister. Wonderful singer, wonderful actress, love her to death. Mm. Wish everybody had the chance to get to know her because she's great. And it's a great role for her. Mm. And then in the role of Casper Ten Boom, we've got Conrad John Shuck, who, and I nerd out about this. <laughs> John, he's got an amazing resume. Like he was in the, the in MASH, the original movie. <laughs> his his first on-screen kiss was with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> okay, you should see Incredible. that. That That's is amazing, awesome. right? <laughs> yeah. And then he is also a recurring Klingon in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> mm. And then my personal favorite, I'm a huge fan of Babylon 5, the science fiction series, and he played Drawl. Uh, which is just a great character from that show. You might be know, the Alien. cheese that stands alone in this room when it comes to Babylon Five. I am in this room, but not in the world. I know you guys are out there, you Babylon Five fans. And uh, anyway, if you've seen him in play Drawl in Babylon Five, I think you will immediately understand why he's just destined to be Casper Tinboom. Huh. He's just a great fatherly figure and a wonderful mm-hmm. actor, and I feel incredibly grateful that he's part of our production Mm. and then we you know just the rest of the cast is rounded out by nashville's huge pool pool of talent well having read the book now i want to go back to the audition uh Mm. announcement to see which characters you've kept which characters aren't present because there are so many people in this book through the course of the talent right Mm. and And we have to amalgamate some folks especially the nazis yeah Mm. 
Well, yeah. Spo- so, spoiler alert: like one of the big moments for in Corey's life is that after the war, she's uh, somewhere talking about her experience and talking about how she feels that the way forward is forgiveness. And after that speech, one of the most cruel guards from her concentration camp walks up to her and says, "You're right. We should all forgive each other," and sticks out his hand, oh, asking gosh. for forgiveness. And uh, she has this real come to Jesus moment where she says, I couldn't do it. There's no way I can forgive this man. And then as she describes it, the Holy Spirit enters her and she feels him surge down her arm as it extends and she forgives this man. Huge moment in her life. And so I felt really clearly that that was kind of the the final moment of the play Mm. is how do we move this woman to the point where she can say, I forgive you to this guard. And so, you know, Chills. In the real life story, she doesn't meet him until she's in a concentration camp halfway through Act Two, mm-hmm. and that doesn't work in story terms. Mm-hmm. So, in her real life story, there was a young man who was a Nazi Hitler youth that was working in their clock shop before the war, and so I kind of find ways to amalgamate these okay. two characters yeah. so that she meets him before the war and they get to know one another, and then he ends up being that guard so that it's one character all the way through. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of changes that you have to make in adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like these things are important to me, so I, may, I was careful to change the names mm. because you know I don't want somebody who is maybe the descendant of this man mm. to read in, or to come see the play and think, oh, that's not what my dad did. Yeah. You know, so the changing the names in certain ways to you know, yeah. protect people is important, but that's how... In a space of two hours, yeah. you have to yeah. go about communicating the emotional weight of a book that takes 10 hours. Mm-hmm. To, That's you know so what I mean? fast. Mm-hmm. Like, that touches so well on the issue of the difference between truth and fact. Right. Mm-hmm. And how right. story is this opening into yeah. truth that is not the same as factual accuracy. That's right. And, yeah. and just what it means to translate something. Especially if you're going after emotional or spiritual truth. Mm -hmm. So like I can fudge the facts in order to really effectively communicate an emotional and spiritual truth that I can't with facts. Yeah. You know, like an eight hour documentary can do that with facts, Mm -hmm. but a two hour play cannot. So Mm -hmm. that's where creativity comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why they call it an art form. Yeah, it's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. We won't dig into that too much, but it's a good, yeah. it's a good can. It's like a good can of worms. Can. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have kind of a concluding question that I would almost consider it cliche, but if you could choose a theme or a quote or a moment, some, some kind of encapsulating nugget from the hiding place that has made it into the stage adaptation that you hope lands as something that sticks with people especially well when they leave the theater what would you choose and why and what do you hope that people learn from the story today well i think the theme of it is theodicy Mm. which is maybe a weird word that's another can that uh that some folks don't know and uh well this is actually interesting I, i realized as i was writing the hiding place that the three plays that i've written are all centering around a, a, a similar theme. Dang. So the the Battle of Franklin was a story about the Civil War and uh, our relationship to slavery and our how we mistreat our fellow men. And so it was a wrestling with how we love one another in the midst of horrific circumstances. And then Frankenstein, strangely, is about how we respond to abuse and mistreatment in humanity and how the ways in which we are mistreated shape us. Mm-hmm. 
then the hiding place is very much about how we respond to suffering mm-hmm. and how it either destroys or saves us, maybe. So all three of them kind of deal with, I, I kind of think of them as like a trilogy of human suffering <laughs> in some yeah. ways. Well, that's Seriously. uplifting. Yeah. In fact, like I've, I've joked with my wife that I promise the next thing I write will be a comedy. <laughs> because so far, everything I write just winds up with everybody dead in the end. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of the primary themes of The Hiding Place is theodicy, which is a word that means how can we believe in a good God in the context of a God that permits suffering. And that is something that humans have been wrestling with since there were humans. Yeah. And we have never successfully answered that question. And I think if you encounter somebody that thinks they do have a satisfying answer, you should be suspicious of that answer. I don't think we're going to know it until the revelation of all things is at hand. But in my sort of wrestling with it in this play, the conclusion that I've come to that is, if not satisfying, is at least something that I am able to live with is that God's answer to suffering is not to remove it, but to participate in it. Hmm. The answer is not a lesson. The answer is an action. Hmm. And that action is that God enters his creation and dies along with it in order that he can resurrect it. And so it's out of that kind of wrestling and death that we have our own hope of resurrection and restoration. And that's kind of what I came to as the only sense I could make out of Betsy's willingness to be grateful in the midst of a concentration camp, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so the thing in the story that really illustrates that for me is there's a story that Corey tells about her dad where she asks him, how can you not be scared right now? And he says, well, I I wait for my ticket. And she Mm -hmm. said, what does that mean? He's like, well, don't you remember when we used to go, you know, to Amsterdam when you were a kid, we'd go to the train station and what would happen? And she says, well, we would go and the train would be there and then we would get on the train. He says, well, no. You couldn't get on the train until I gave you your ticket. Mm. And so courage is like that. Mm. When the moment comes that we need our ticket, our father will give it to us. Mm. And so in a lot of ways, the play is about Corey, Betsy, and Casper waiting for the moment in which God hands them their ticket. And that has a special resonance for me because in Dostoevsky's The Brother Karamazov, There's this great speech that the character of Ivan gives where he's wrestling with the problem of suffering and trying to figure out how anybody can believe that God is good when children suffer. And he ends his argument by saying, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's just that I return him his ticket. I don't want your ticket. The interaction between that from Dostoevsky Mm. and Corey's needing of her own ticket provides a lot of dramatic tension that I was really excited about wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope that lands with the audience. I think when Corey's ticket finally arrives, I think people will feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. So the hiding place opens June 30th, June 30th in Nashville. Yeah. At the Soledeo oh. center, which is on the Christ Presbyterian campus mm-hmm. is a beautiful, yeah, it is beautiful new facility that they've just completed in the last year or so. And I'm really excited that we are the first professional theater production in the space. Mm. Yeah. And you can get tickets at rabbitroomtheater.com. Rabbitroomtheater.com. Theater R-E. So this is not community theater. This is not high school theater. This is professional world-class theater. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to see what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. This show exists thanks to our members. Membership allows The Rabbit Room to offer true and beautiful things, not only through the podcast network, 
but through press and publishing, live events, and the support of creators and their work. If you're a member of The Rabbit Room, you make all of this possible. Thank you. The featured theme music for this podcast is from Jordy Searcy. Be well, friends. Until next time.